One of America's greatest strengths is diversity. From state to state, all kinds of people, climates, and cultures come together here to form a varied and magnificent nation. But one of the drawbacks of this strength, especially as one travels across state lines, is keeping track of the different rules and regulations each state has. And when it comes to R&D, there's just as much legislative diversity as there is of any other kind. That's why on today's episode of The Fiona Show, R&D Tax Credit, we'll be discussing just some of the ways R&D benefits vary across the nation. A recent example of this, in April 2021, the Texas Comptroller of Public Accounts put forward two rule amendments aimed at increasing research and development credits for sales and use taxes. To lead our discussion on these rule changes and how they reflect larger issues in state-to-state R&D differences, I'd like to hand things off to Director of R&D Tax Credits at Cross-Border Solutions, Rahim Walji. Rahim, you have the floor. Thanks, Matthew. Really appreciate it. And I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Professor Richard D. Pomp, who is the Alva P. Loisel Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut. Welcome, Professor. How are you? Thank you. And you're about the only person who's ever correctly pronounced Loisel. So. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll take that as high praise. <laughs> yeah. Now, he's long dead, so he's not here to appreciate it, but you got it right. Respect for the past, right? <laughs> You're correct. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here today and, and really looking forward to talking about R&D credits, of course, but some of the state variations that exist and some of the different principles, you know, why some states have them, why they don't. So really, really excited for the conversation today. So, you know, let's kind of dive into the topic. One way or another, you know, state R&D credits are, are primarily based off of the U.S. federal credit. So can you set the stage for us with a brief overview of the history behind the federal credit before we dip down, if you will, to the state level? Yeah, and, and that's a great observation because no state wants to reinvent the Internal Revenue Code. And so the starting point is typically what's the amount of your qualified R&D expenditures under the Internal Revenue Code? Then the states come along and tweak those rules. So you're quite right in let's do a quick dive into the history of the federal R&D tax credit. Goes back to 1981 when the country was in an economic slowdown, job outsourcing became more commonplace, and people were simply worried that we were losing our edge and had to keep technical jobs within the country. One of the ways the government did it was with the adoption of a tax credit for research and development, R&D. And almost immediately, the credit became the subject of scandals when horror stories emerged about tax credits being claimed successfully, by the way, for such things as McNuggets and Gillette's lemon lime shaving cream and new fashions in clothing wasn't exactly what people had in mind when they were talking about innovation, keeping technical jobs in the the country. From that time forward, the rules came and they went and they got tweaked and they finally have stabilized. In 2003, 
a very important change was made before then to qualify for the credit, you had to actually create something that was new to the world. Boy, that bar was set awfully high, new to the world. And that was replaced with a much lower bar. No, no, just new to the taxpayer. And that was a watershed event because that just opened the floodgates to more and more credits. And then something significant happened in 2015. The R&D credit became permanent. Until that point in time, the credit came, it went, it got reinstated, and that made it very hard for taxpayers to plan their research and development spending. You didn't know whether the feds were gonna be there with a credit or not. And so making it permanent was another one of the critical changes. And a lot of money goes into this credit. About maybe $12 billion was the last estimate. And what's so interesting about it is that it is not just the largest companies in the country. About 15% of companies claiming the credit had business revenues below $25,000. 45% had revenues below 5 million. I suspect a lot of people listening to this podcast fall into that group. About half the companies that claim the R&D credit are what we would call middle market companies or small businesses. And what's a more shocking estimate, at least in my mind, is that maybe only 5% of the corporations eligible to take the federal R&D actually take it. Only 5%, 95% are leaving money on the table. And the interesting question is why? Why are 95% of eligible corporations not claiming this free money from the feds? And I think the answer is because of all the misconceptions that are floating around that we will put to rest in the next five minutes or so. One major misconception, as I talk to my people, they always say, well, only, only scientists in lab coats are doing R&D. And it can't be any further from the truth. We're gonna see in a minute how the IRS has defined R&D through a four-part test, and the definition is broad. And one of the reasons I think we have this misconception is the way businesses view themselves. Many of them don't view themselves as R&D companies. They're manufacturers, they're retailers, they're in the food and beverage business, oil and energy, agriculture. They brew beer. But as you dive into the activities they are doing, you see that they actually perform activities that qualify for the R&D tax credit without realizing it. And so that's a, an important misconception to put to bed right at the get-go. The R&D tax credit does extend to applied science, 
But that's something many companies perform on a daily business, creating new, improving existing materials, devices, products, or processes. And yes, the credit is very popular with the high tech sector, but it's also applicable to other sectors, manufacturing, agriculture, biotech, and brewing beer, one of my favorite examples. So let's just take a manufacturer that's working to increase manufacturing speed while keeping quality consistent. That's a goal of many manufacturers, probably R&D credit, retrofitting an existing piece of equipment to use for a different function than it was originally intended for, R&D, overcoming hardware limitations to achieve an aggressive performance target or lighter footprint, R&D. One takeaway from today is that you folks listening to this, you are doing R&D. You just don't have that name, and it's not your image of what it is you do. Another, Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Another misconception. The R&D tax credit is only for companies working on groundbreaking innovation, and it is available to companies developing or improving existing products materials, technologies, nothing necessarily groundbreaking rather than improving, tweaking. And that isn't typically groundbreaking, but it certainly does qualify. If you are overcoming technological uncertainty, you don't know what's going to work. Do you go path A, do you go path B? You may well be qualifying for the R&D credit. Another misconception, only large profitable companies can claim the R&D tax credit. We aren't even paying federal income tax, so how can we qualify? Well, as of 2015, you can qualify because in that year, a change was made in the law to give R&D credits for startups, essentially, qualified small businesses. Well, they don't have income taxes. They're a startup. They're operating at a loss. What good is the credit? Congress extended the credit to their FICA taxes, their their payroll taxes. Now, they have people, and therefore they're paying payroll taxes. They may not be paying income taxes, but their R&D credit can offset their FICA taxes. And these small businesses can take up to $250,000 per year with a lifetime cap of $1.25 million. So that was a very significant change. And a lot of small businesses were unaware of it because again, they say to themselves, well, we have no income tax. So why are we worried about the credit? You know, one of the problems is that a company's internal tax or finance or accounting folks don't stay on top of some of this esoterica. They're very good at what they do, but this is outside their comfort zone. That the R&D credit is a very technical project-based credit. You have to identify projects, not just What's our revenue? What's our expenses? The kind of bread and butter that the tax people do in-house. No, this is beyond that. It calls for a whole different skill set. And you really have to consult the pros that have experience with the R&D credit because a false step can kill you. 
Documentation and presentation is everything in, in this business. And it is beyond the capabilities of most in-house persons. And again, it's not a criticism of them. They're very good at what they do, but they're not masters of everything. And tax has become so specialized today. And the R&D credit is a nice example of that. Another misconception, well, you know, the R&D credit is, is really for people who are increasing their research, but our R&D spend hasn't increased at all. Well, I'll tell you why it's a misconception. While the R&D credit does require an increase in research spend, the current year spend is compared to a base, and the base is 50% of your average spend for the prior three years. So your company's R&D spend could actually be decreasing as it might have been in 2020, but your company could still be eligible for the credit. So again, you see there's lots of traps for the unwary here in just falling into these common misconceptions. Another one, only projects with a successful outcome can be claimed. Nonsense. The regulations make it quite clear success is not required in order to be eligible. Now, take advertising. The saying is half of advertising is, is wasted. We just don't know which half. You're going to get to deduct your advertising, even if it doesn't work. Maybe sales go down. Maybe you've blundered. It doesn't matter. We don't penalize losers under the Internal Revenue Code. You tried. That's all that we ask. And the same thing with R&D. All right, maybe it doesn't work out, but you tried. And that is good enough. So let's turn to the four categories that have to be satisfied. They're broad, as you'll see when I tell you about them. They're all terms of art. They're the kinds of things that make tax lawyers and tax accountants' hearts palpitate because there's so much room to maneuver here. The first did you attempt to develop a new or improved product, process, software, technique, invention, or formula? Well, in many cases, the answer is obviously yes. That's what we're constantly doing. We've got to be nimble. That's how we stay ahead of the competition. So the effort must attempt to increase performance, function, reliability, or quality. Exactly what businesses do routinely day in and day out. And of course, as I said, you don't need to actually achieve improvement or invention. A certain amount of efforts will always fail, but we're not going to penalize you for that. Second category is, is this involving hard science? And that refers to engineering, physics, chemistry, biology, computer science. So you take my favorite example of people who brew beer. Hey, that's chemistry. If you've ever made beer in the basement, that is chemistry. And these craft beers, that is chemistry. And they are surprised, shocked when they hear, wow, we're involved in research and development. Well, of course you are. You're coming up with that better tasting, non-alcoholic beer that there's a niche market for. Well, you'll be surprised to find maybe you're going to get that federal R&D credit equal to 20% of your R&D expenditures. Did your activities eliminate uncertainty? So the activities are intended to eliminate uncertainty concerning the capability or method of developing or improving what was sought out or the appropriate design of it. In other words, a company might not know whether or how they can develop a product or not know the design of it at the start, 
but their effort should seek to clarify that direction. Well, that's called innovation. Let's see if this new design is going to actually be received well by the market. Will people like McNuggets? Will they like some of our newer meatless dishes? It looks like qualifies for the R&D. And do your activities require experimentation? They have to go through some experimentation to eliminate or resolve the uncertainty. Well, that's what market research is all about, isn't it? Focus groups and, and whatnot. Modeling, simulation, trial and error. So you see, when you look at these broad categories, my goodness, what business isn't involved in this? If they're not, I don't know how long they're going to stay in business because they're a pretty dynamic marketplace today. And the race does go to the nimble. So that's the overview. And now we can take a deeper dive into the states if you are ready. Thank you so much. I can tell why you're such a wonderful professor. You were able to lay that out so well in terms of the various steps that are required from a compliance standpoint. And thank you so much for, you know, talking about these misconceptions. No two multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp we often encounter so many taxpayers who have these misconceptions and how things need to work so it was really really nice to hear you talk through some of those those key ones that are very helpful to dispel so that the audience understands you know there is opportunity out there for them well, Rahim, I know you are one of the leaders of the artificial intelligence movement as applied to taxation. And my guess is there's probably not a client you don't interact with where you don't more than pay for your, your time and effort many, many times over. There's just so much low-hanging fruit in this business. Absolutely. And a lot of companies, to your point, their perspective on how they operate is not that they're an R&D firm, right? It's that they are a manufacturer or food and beverage or engineering firm, right? And so I think those are really, really good points to make. But to your overview now of the federal side, you know, let's definitely dive into the state side of things. So let's start with the recent story that Matthew mentioned, you know, on, on R&D credit rule sort of clarifiers. We can break down the components and hopefully, you know, zoom in and out to see different or similar state policies, if you will. So let's just catch everyone up on what these amendments affect. Could you, as you so well laid out, you know, the federal overview, could you tell our audience a little bit about what 
a franchise tax credit is, you know, and, and kind of how it relates in Texas, as well as sales and use taxes. Sure. Let's start with the sales and, and use tax. Until a recent Supreme Court case, I bet people listening were aware that they could buy things over the internet and the vendor would not collect the home state's sales tax. That all changed with a case called Wayfair. It got a lot of press a couple years ago. The Supreme Court basically reversed a long-standing rule that said a vendor needed a physical presence in the state before we could ask them to collect the state's sales tax. Technically, it was the state's use tax. And I'll explain how those two interact in a minute. The Supreme Court said no longer you need physical presence. You just really need to be doing business in a state with a substantial economic presence. So now many of us buying things on the internet find our state sales tax being collected on our behalf. Now, technically, it is the use tax. And I'll explain the difference. When sales taxes first were introduced in this country during the Great Depression in the 30s, the states needed money desperately. People were unemployed, and so income taxes weren't being collected. Corporate income taxes weren't being collected. People were reneging on their property taxes. States were in dire straits. And they knew that the Europeans had successfully used sales taxes. So it's really a foreign import. And we start levying a sales tax, uh, initially on necessities, because people were engaging a lot of discretionary spending. Here was the problem. You're the first state to adopt a sales tax. Your people will go to neighboring states, especially if you live in the Northeast, where states are small and the borders are porous, and you take a state like Massachusetts, it's surrounded by a tax haven called New Hampshire. They don't have a sales tax. So when Massachusetts adopted its sales tax, it had to worry about people driving to New Hampshire and buying things free of a sales tax. The answer was a use tax, and that's where it makes its appearance, that if you buy something in another state and bring it home for use in your, in your home state, you owe the state a use tax. It is exactly at the same rate as the sales tax would have been had you bought that good in the state. So you see what happens now, there's no advantage in buying it in a neighboring state without a sales tax because you're going to pay the use tax. Should the other state have a sales tax, then we'll give you credit for it against the use tax. The only rub in this story, as I'm sure you're anticipating, is I have described a situation where it would be voluntary. I'm going to have to file a return and I am going to have to figure out, well, what would I have paid on this item if I had bought it locally? What would the sales tax rate have been? Very few people did that. Politicians might have done it because they feared the embarrassment of coming to light one day that they didn't pay the use tax. But unless the vendor collected it, 
it was a tax that really wasn't paid. It was on the books, but it wasn't paid unless you bought something that had to be registered like a car, a plane, or a boat, in which case this use tax would be picked up at the time of, of registration. Supreme Court, when it said you no longer need a physical presence, ended up rewriting the rules. So now we have all these out-of-state vendors selling into a state, and they are collecting the use tax on your behalf. Texas is a very interesting story because Texas has no personal income tax, and they have no corporate income tax as you and I would recognize it, it is called the margins tax. It is a, a bastardized tax with elements of an income tax and elements of a turnover tax. No one knows quite what to make of it. It's a kind of tax that would be adopted only by a state that didn't have a personal income tax and didn't have a corporate income tax. So Texas wants to encourage research and development in the state and they have changed their law so that you get a credit now for research and development expenditures that as their starting point satisfy the federal definition. And you can take that credit against what they call their franchise tax, this margin tax, not a tax anyone really would recognize as such because it is such a hybrid. When it comes to their sales and use tax, if you use something that qualifies for a research and development property, you will be able to exempt the purchase of that, whether you purchased it in Texas, in which case your exemption would be from the sales tax, or if you purchased it out of state, and brought it back to Texas, in which case the exemption is against the use tax. So they are one of the few states that extend this credit to the sales and use tax. And one reason they do is that they have a fairly hefty rate of sales and use tax to make up really for their lack of a personal income tax. And then they tweak the rules on this they have a lot of bells and whistles. And it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, all states will have bells and whistles. Their starting point is the federal definition of qualifying research expenditures, QREs, you'll see if you read the cases. But then they go ahead and they add their own requirements. And one of the things that Texas makes quite clear is that this exemption that they're giving you against the sales and use tax or this credit against the margin tax is only for research and development that takes place in Texas. Because the feds don't care what state the R&D takes place in as long as it's in the country. So the federal tax credit is not state specific. You'll get it whether it's Texas or Louisiana. But when Texas decides to give a credit, they care very deliberately. We're not going to give you a credit for R&D you've done in another state. So right from the outset, the states make an adjustment to the federal rules because they want to limit their credit to only 
state-specific research and development. And that's what Texas does. That's what almost every other state does. Alaska is the exception. Alaska gives you the credit for R&D as long as it takes place in the United States. Texas goes further than that. Texas adds a whole bunch, I call them little tweaks, and they are interesting because you can ask the question, as we always do as tax lawyers and accountants, what in the world led them to make this adjustment or this clarification? Why? And the answer sometimes is because, A, there was a case that they either won or lost, and they are responding to that case, or probably just as likely someone lobbied for this. We may never learn of the identity of that person. We can infer it by asking, well, who would really care about this particular tweak in the law? How many people would care about that? And we could kind of rework backwards and say, oh, well, there's only a couple of companies that manufacture computers in Texas. Maybe that was for Dell. And anyone who's a major employer is going to be heard in Austin at the Capitol. So that's often the case. There are head scratchers. You know, you read it, you say, why do they care? What's that all about? And that is true of, of Texas. They made a, a number of changes that you don't find elsewhere. Again, this is the stuff for which tax lawyers and accountants drool because you know we live in a world of, of grays and shadows like radiologists and you give us something that doesn't exist somewhere else and that's open season on our interpreting it. Texas is a recent adoptee, you know, why Texas, what are they worried about? They seem to be doing very nicely. But in 2014, they introduced an R&D credit. And again, why do the states care? Right. That's a, that's a good point, right? So let's make that transition. So how do these types of taxes factor into the Texas state credit, right? I think you're, you're going there, but you've talked about sales and use tax. You talked about franchise tax. And, you know, as you mentioned, Texas seems to be doing well, at least from, from what you hear in the news. We introduced, I say we because I'm, I'm based out of Houston. We introduced, you know, the R&D credit in 2014. But how do these types of taxes and, and these, these ideas we're talking about factor into all of this? Yeah, well, you are certainly a firsthand witness to the enormous growth of Texas. I think it is one of the states with the highest in-migration as opposed to my home state of Connecticut that actually is shrinking. States like Texas are growing. My students are finding jobs in Houston and Dallas at decent starting salaries, low cost of living, and they like not having to shovel snow in the winter. So why Texas? And I am not privy enough to the politics to just wonder, did they feel they needed this to keep their edge? Their neighboring states have R&D credits. Were they getting flack? Were there corporations that said to the governor and the leaders in the House and Senate, we would like to move our business to Texas, or we would like to expand our business in Texas? The only problem is you don't have an R&D credit. 
And the places that we are thinking of moving to or expanding in do. And that's a game changer for us. You know, does someone like Dell go to the Capitol and say, we're thinking about putting a new manufacturing plant somewhere outside of Texas? It really hurts us to say this. We, after all, Dell himself went to the University of Texas, started assembling these things in his dorm room. And gosh, I'm a Texan through and through. It pains me to even think of leaving the Lone Star State. But I have shareholders I answer to. And so I'm afraid I am thinking of expanding elsewhere. Now, this is totally fanciful, except one of the things I have done is cost out the tax consequences of relocating plants. So I know how the game is played. And just because someone costs out what it would mean to move doesn't mean they're serious about moving, but you want to have that information available to use as it fits you. So I could imagine what I just said actually happening, not necessarily with Dell, but maybe someone out of state who says, God, Texas is so hot. We'd like to use it for our commercial domicile. Very favorable tax structure, but other states have a favorable tax structure and they have the R&D. So what do you think? Can you help us out? Because that's really the deal breaker. And again, I have no idea if it happened that way or not. I just have found it. I always found it kind of odd. There's Texas, one of the hottest states in the country. Coming to the party late. A lot of these states have an R&D credits from the 80s when the feds adopted the 90s. So there's Texas, a little late to the party. And what really was the driving force for them? I don't know. You'd have to really figure out who sponsored the bill and why. I guess it's knowable. I, I just don't know it, except I've seen the dynamic at work. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point that, you know, there's probably a multitude of reasons why it happened. And, you know, part of that is you hear a lot of people are moving to Texas because, you know, there's the income tax, right? That, that's one less thing to, to worry about. And then you have now companies that want to move. And to your point, I think there's sort of two different ways to play, right? There's a sales and use tax exemption on property that's directly used in research. And then there's the franchise tax credit, which is based on those QREs you were talking about, right? Those qualified research expenses. And so and I think it's, it's a way to try to entice the businesses that, you know, if you're going to have those types of facilities here, there is a benefit not only at the federal level that you can claim, as you mentioned earlier, in any state that you're in, but there is a state benefit as well that hopefully is enticing to, to have businesses continue to build R&D facilities and things like that. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Let's look at the states that don't have R&D credits and try to figure out why don't they have R&D credits. One that pops out is Michigan. And there they are, home to at least historically our big three car manufacturers involved in a lot of R&D. And you wonder whether the cost of an R&D credit would have been just prohibitive. And what would the state gain in return? You know, they're already here. So it's not like you're trying to attract someone to Michigan. You've got your major manufacturing base pretty much 
set, at least before they did become a little footloose and fancy free, maybe you couldn't incur the revenue hit. Texas can, of course. They can handle the hit from the credit or the exemption. But a state maybe like a Michigan says, we're not going to gain anything. We're going to lose a lot of revenue. And so we'll pass. Thank you. We're not under any pressures to adopt it or not. Alabama doesn't have one. Has it stopped car manufacturers from going to Alabama? No, it certainly doesn't seem to. So maybe a state makes a decision opposite that of Texas that says, you know, we're a pretty hot state. We've got a lot of people moving in. We've got a lot of manufacturing that's relocating here. Salaries are low. We're not a union state. People like the quality of life. We don't have to do anything else. We're doing okay the way it is. And an R&D credit just costs us money. We don't think we're going to get enough in return. Now, politicians are somewhat skeptical of the use of all these tax incentives, by the way. They're almost forced to play the game because no politician wants to run for re-election with the blood of a runaway plant on his or her hands. But when you talk to them, you know, socially off the record, they are very skeptical that these things really make a difference. There are so many other factors, starting with cost of labor, cost of energy, weather, cost of housing, quality of life, crime rates, all of that, that enter into the calculus that you just don't think changing the third place in an internal rate of return calculation is really going to make a big difference to this company. But again, I've not been there at the table. I've I've helped companies make presentations, but I'm not there when the decision gets made. And again, politicians are a little gun shy about not playing the game. What we really need is just a federal statute that says essentially you can't play this game. But they would never do it with the R&D credit because after all, the feds have sponsored that one and it'd be a little hypocritical for them to say, hey, this is great for us, but not for you. But they, they could do it and, and stop this kind of race to the bottom that we see. But anyway, I suppose each state that doesn't have an R&D credit probably has its own story if you were privy enough and close enough to the politics to kind of unbundle it. Yeah, there's so many different aspects, as you mentioned. It could be budgetary reasons. It could be adding an administrative workload to different departments. It could be lost revenue that is already earmarked for for other things. You know, you think about the TCJA and the sunsetting of expensing full deductions in the year versus amortizing over five. You know, these were done for budgetary reasons, right? And so you, you start to see how that may come through. In terms of, I do want to kind of close the loop on Texas side. So one of the things that, that the amendment did, right, was redefining or better defining certain terms, as well as the credit qualifications. Why is that an important aspect? Is that because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, some of these things are very, very broad and difficult to, to quantify sometimes to the, some of those misconceptions you were talking about? Can you opine there? Yes. I mean, those four categories, the big four is sometimes referred to in the, in the trade, they are broad and those terms are not self-defining and they lead to litigation. McNuggets won the litigation, but imagine what a waste of resources in fighting over whether McNuggets ought to qualify for a research and development credit. 
That's the kind of burning social issue we should be involved in in this country. An attempt to add some flesh to the skeleton is always good, I think, from a tax administration perspective and from a tax planning perspective, because it lets you know what the game is that you are playing. And if it can stop needless, wasted legal resources and accounting resources down the road, better to know it now than after 10 years of litigation, whether you win or lose it, that's 10 years of clients' money and time. Sure. Sure. Better right to, to understand what's the game we're playing. And maybe some of that went into the Texas elaboration on some of the federal concepts. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So, what are some scenarios you know that might benefit a state to alter? you know, certain aspects of the law as opposed to just following the internal revenue code text. You know, I, you know, I think about certain states that have refundable credits, certain states that have caps. Can you talk maybe through some of the scenarios about why those would be beneficial to a state? Yeah, well, I think you just nailed a couple of the biggies. A state that is worried about the loss in revenue will use a cap, at least in their early days, until they get a better feel about what their exposure is. So as you examine the state law and as the introduction to our podcast so nicely pointed out, this diversity as you cross state lines, it's exciting and it's the bane of lawyers' existence too because every time you cross state lines, you're entering a whole separate legal regime that has to be, be mastered and you can't assume you know what you don't know. One of the things we don't know is what's the revenue exposure of the credit. And as you point out, some states will cap the amount. The federal credit is unlimited. But capping it is a very risk-averse position to take. Sometimes the cap is relaxed as time goes forward and the state has a, a better feel. And sometimes it is left in place. So that's a good one from the state's perspective. Some states require that the R&D take place in designated areas of the state, like an enterprise zone. Now, these, these states lack investment in rural areas. I'm sure that's true in, in a big state like Texas. You probably don't need more development in a place like Houston or a Dallas, certainly Last time I was in, in Austin, traffic was unbearable, so I'm not sure you really want 
more development. You need transportation infrastructure, but you want your development out in the rural areas in sort of exurbia, long commute from the central cities, but that's the next area where people are going to have to find reasonable housing. And so you want to encourage a research and development laboratory in that part of the state. So you do find states that will put geographic limits on it. Some, as you point out, some make the credit refundable. The federal credit is not refundable. Now, this is costly and not to be taken lightly because you're giving back money. This taxpayer has more of a credit than they can use, and you're going to write them a check for the excess. That's serious stuff. It's not all that common. It's a risky approach, but states do that. States have different rules from the feds on carrying over unused credit. See, that's an alternative to making it refundable is to say, okay, well, you can carry it over. The feds carry over 20 years. The states never have a period greater than 20 years. Oftentimes it's less than 20 years. Same thing for carrybacks. Some states make you apply for the state R&D. It's not as a matter of right. They want to look over what's your plan? Where is it going to be? We don't know whether this fits in with our overall vision for the state. And so we will decide whether we're going to give you the R&D credit for that. So that's another big difference. I think between you and me, we've really hit the major differences. Oh, and there, I'll tell you one that's very interesting, I think, for some of the startups. There's a few states that will allow a credit to be taken against the withholding taxes. So imagine this now. You have collected taxes from your employees, which through withholding, that's a prepayment of their income taxes. And in the normal course of events, you turn that over to the IRS and I, as the employee, get credit for that. Well, there's some states that allow you to use your R&D credit against the withholding tax. So you're gonna keep money now, which would normally have gone to the state. The employee will still get credit as if the money did go to the state, so the employee doesn't know what's going on. But you'll be able to keep some of those withheld taxes cashed in your pocket. That's pretty good. That's a pretty fast way to get money to a, a corporation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It could be expensive, so it's not all that common. So there's another example of the diversity we see at the state level. Yeah, there are definitely a few out there that have unique opportunities. I remember a couple that are sort of first come, first serve, right? You got to get your application in and it opens like January 2nd at midnight. And you know, you've got to submit as soon as you can. And there's a cap and, you know, sometimes a couple big companies will come in and, and take a few. I remember that happening a few years back. Um, I yeah. think they definitely made some changes since then. But in terms of changes, you know, we've been talking a little bit and there's a lot in the news right now about, R&D, and there has been for the last year or so, and what some potential changes that may be coming, you know, with certain proposals. But as a point of order, you know, how do changes to state level law differ from the process of, of federal law? And how does that impact, you know, maybe how companies view R&D at the state level? Yes, another great question. If I were hired as a lobbyist, 
I would much prefer lobbying at the state level than at the federal level. At the state level, a major employer simply has much more clout than when they are one of thousands of employers of of mid-size payroll because they just get lost in the masses. But at the state level, if you are the major employer in town and I show up making a case on your behalf with computer printouts and economists and all of that, I'm just going to be listened to. I have access for one thing. My client may be a major contributor. You know, at the state level, it doesn't always take that much money to be a major contributor, unlike at the federal level. And so there's access, there's clout, things move faster. You have less hoops to go through, less staff to have to convince. That permanent staff at the federal level of some awfully smart people, you look at who Biden brought in in the Treasury Department, the one I'm most familiar with, some of my colleagues from teaching, very, very smart people, sophisticated. Many of them have been with other administrations. You're not going to bamboozle them so easily. At the state level, where you have, at least I have experienced, much more of a turnover. Don't even talk about term limits, but you have much more of a a turnover in staff. They're younger. Taxes, as we all know, just so complicated. Many of my former students who work at the legislature here in Connecticut Man, they don't want to see anything having to do with tax. They took basic tax because it was essentially required, and that's the last tax course they ever want to take in their life. They panic, essentially. So I come in as a lobbyist, and I start walking them through how this will affect tax planning, tax code, et cetera. I'm the only game in town now. They don't know enough to to push back. You show up at one of the subcommittees in Congress and you're going to be meeting with someone who's seen the likes of you before. And they've heard the spiel and they know where the soft spots are. That's a much harder lift federally than it is at the state level in my experience. So much rather lobby at the state level, which is why I think we see a little bit more craziness sometimes in what the states do in in the tax arena, because we can get our way a little easier. Our threat is more credible. So look, you know, we're we're not going to be the first corporation to leave this state. As you know, you've already lost three major Fortune 50 corporations through mergers and acquisitions. They moved out of the state. General Electric moving out of Connecticut to Boston. Raytheon moving out of Connecticut to Massachusetts. So there's a fear. There's a real fear. Oh, my goodness. That's the last thing we need is another merger and acquisition where we lose the commercial domicile. So legislators run scared. And I think that just gives us a leg up when we represent a client at the legislature. Whereas the feds, you know, who, who is so big that it would disrupt the workings of the federal government if they were to outsource some of their employment. We know they outsource right now so much offshore. So I just think the politics dynamics, very different. No, great, great point. And 
I think the comparison of how the process works a little bit quicker and, you know, the relationships are a little bit more consistent in terms of how people interact and communicate. I think those are really good points as well. So before we wrap up, let's talk about, you know, what circumstances might lead states to adopt RD tax rates or improve the ones they have. You know, what might incentivize the states to do this? Would perhaps some changes at the federal level incentivize states? Are there any other things that might do so? What are your thoughts there? I think the state of the economy post-COVID is going to be the driving force. We see states that are much flusher than they ever thought they would be, such as California. Uh, The stock market has been great for California's revenue. It's been great in Connecticut. We went from major deficits being projected to having a, a surplus. No one is feeling desperate today in states that are flush. The federal stimulus payments helped, stock market helped, all of that. But let's take a state that really is facing a severe deficit and they're feeling desperate and they are being told, gee, if you adopt an R&D credit, you're going to see employment increasing. People will be doing more R&D in this state and you can't lose because what you're giving up with the credit, you're going to make back many times over through increased employment personal income tax, and increased corporate profits through the corporate income tax. And therefore, it's a supply-side kind of argument. We reduce our taxes, but in the end, we are better off. So there is such a thing as a free lunch. Sounds too good to be true, and it probably is in many states. But I think there is going to be a certain desperation that sets in after the stimulus funds have been received and spent and they're looking at cutbacks in education and some of the social net, the state may be more receptive to tax incentives than it would have been earlier. Good point. And hopefully, you know, with things like the Endless Frontier Act that's looking to create, you know, focus areas and hubs, that's, as you mentioned, you know, federal level funding that's going to go in, but perhaps those states can can enhance their state benefits as well, right? So that you can have a further incentive for businesses and, and growth in that area. Well, you know what? Yeah, I, I think if you were lobbying on behalf of a client, that's exactly the argument that you would make. I mean, you're somewhat of a visionary on this because I've not heard anyone else even focus on the connection. But I I think you're right that there is a connection and it's an opening, isn't it? In making the argument, let's reinforce what the feds are doing. There's synergy here. Let's build on that synergy and jumpstart this economy. I've not heard the argument made yet, but you're ahead of the curve. I'll try my best to stay there. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) Professor, it has been an absolute delight speaking with you, learning from you getting your input and expertise on on the state's topics and 
all these different variations, yet, you know, still some of it rooted at the end of the day in the federal side of things. So it was a pleasure to have you speak with us today. Thank you so much. Yep, yep my pleasure. Thank you. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We'd like to thank Professor Richard Pomp and Rahim for joining us today. We'd like to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, audio engineered by Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer, and he writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time. <laughs>